Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm excited to share my conversation today with Zev Elef about his recent book, Authentically Orthodox, A Tradition-Bound Faith in American Life, and the broader topic of the history of modern Orthodox Judaism and why it matters, both in terms of the developments in American Jewish life and also American religion at large. Zev Elef is the Chief Academic Officer of Hebrew Theological College in Skokie, Illinois, and Associate Professor of Jewish History at Turo College. He's the author or editor of nine books, most recently Authentically Orthodox, as well as Modern Orthodox Judaism, a documentary history. Also, over the past couple of months, Zev has transitioned his course on the history of Orthodox Judaism online, just as so many other scholars have, and he's put together a fantastic set of panel discussions with leading scholars on the topic. And I've posted a link to the videos which he's put on YouTube in the show notes. And I should mention that if you're interested in purchasing a copy of Authentically Orthodox, which we'll talk about today, if you purchase the book directly from Wayne State University Press and use the code POD1, you can get 30% off. That's P-O-D and the number one. Zev and I were so glad to get a chance to sit down and talk about these issues, and we're so excited to share it with you. Thanks for listening. Hi, Zev. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm just so glad to do this uh, and to chat with you about this recent book that you wrote and broadly speaking about the work that you've been doing, because I, I do see that there's a connection between them. And I think that, that you're really doing exciting things. Let the record show that it's beautiful in San Diego right now and we are cooped up in a conference room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. We are at AJS and, and there's this, this big book exhibition just upstairs. And it is cool to see what everybody is doing in the field. And I'm, I'm using this to, to point out that when I look at your books, you've written a handful of them we can see a number of major themes which are coming out. I want to start out by thinking about the fact that you've written a handful of books now that deal with questions of orthodoxy. Obviously, your overarching set of issues has to do with American Judaism, broadly speaking. But in the past few years, you've written particularly about orthodoxy. In 2016, you edited a book with JPS, which was a documentary history of modern orthodoxy. Now, recently, in 2020, you have a new monograph with Wayne State titled Authentically Orthodox, A Tradition-Bound Faith in American Life. And so I was wondering if you want to get us started by thinking a bit about how these projects are related to each other. And what do you see as the overarching question that you are dealing with in these two books and broadly speaking in your research about Orthodox Judaism? Yeah, I think, Jason, you got a handle on it, which is I study American Judaism. I don't study American Jews. I do but in the process of how they cultivate and change and shift American Judaism. I study American religion. Jews obviously are the producers, among others, of American Judaism. But that's my point of entry. My portal of entry for scholarship of American religion is to understand how does a faith-based community shift? What are the contours of change? What happens? What are the determinants of change? So studying Orthodox Judaism, I think, is a, a really helpful case 
to understand, in particular, tradition-bound faiths. So I make the argument that, and I try to situate my work within Catholic, American Catholicism, Lutherans, to a certain extent, the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I believe that Orthodox Judaism in the United States is really interesting because here you have the New World and you have a tradition-bound faith. But not to say that the other uh, streams of Jewishness, Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, uh, whatever, not to say that they're not, they don't have fidelity to tradition, but the notion that you should be tradition-bound, that you have an authority structure and a hierarchy of uh, religious principles uh, that are tethered directly to something called a tradition— makes for really interesting history, even gossip in American Jewish life. Yeah, so I think that it's important that you are putting the history of orthodoxy or, or modern orthodoxy uh, alongside all of these other religious traditions that have developed, particularly in, in America. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, I'm grateful for all the other people who have done such wonderful works. Remarkable scholars, Jacob Katz, certainly Sam Heilman, Jeff Gurak was my teacher, uh, Adam Furziger. For them, I think, though, they were looking at the social history and still are looking at the, his, the social history of American Jews. For me, I was trained really as a religious historian. Yeah, um, I think it might be useful for us, you know, before we dive into it even more, though, um, to think about what is the subject that we're actually discussing. Could you define for us modern orthodoxy. And I think that in a way, people say, okay, this is obvious. We have this idea of modern orthodoxy as a thing, but especially as somebody who's looked at it so closely, how do you define modern orthodoxy and, and what are we really talking about here? What is falling under this framework in this category for right, you? Like, as you point out, uh, that all people have to bargain with modernity, post-modernity, whatever it is we're up to right now. The idea that there's a grappling, there's a coalescence, there's an acculturation with, I think, modern Orthodox Judaism and its leaders, they've always embraced that tension more than others. So it's, it's the gunslinging encounter with both the tradition-bound faith and the modern world outside. That, that struggle, that willingness to enter into the fray, really mediates the history. I don't know if there's another group within American Judaism that does it so undauntedly, good or bad, not, not our issue here, uh, but is so willing to enter into that confrontation. So I want to push you on that a bit. You're talking about the meaning of the beliefs of modern orthodoxy. And I, I think that in the, in the book, you're looking at live religion in particular. Yes. But you're talking about, like when you talk about the tension between uh, tradition and modernity, this, of course, it, it is voiced in, in, in various ways, but you look at why you write the, the motto Torah Umada of, of Torah and science. This is this idea. You have something that's modern and something that's traditional, and they're trying to bring them together. You know, but this also doesn't mean anything. In the same way that for conservative Judaism, the idea of tradition and change, and this is a slogan. You say, like, you're looking at the live religion. So if you had to, again, say, like, okay, what are we actually talking about here by modern Orthodox Jews? What actually is modern Orthodoxy? So I think it's best if you look at the, the Pew study, I think from 2013, mm -hmm. in which the interviewer protocol asked everybody uh, who sat down with a researcher to explain their religious affiliation. If you answered reform or conservative, that was it. They went to the next question. But the prompt when somebody were to answer orthodox was, oh, well, what type of orthodox Jew are you? Are you Hasidic yeshivish? So Hasidic would be uh, to identify, not necessarily with the Hasidic dynasty from Eastern Europe, 
but to align yourself with Hasidic teachings, with maybe be a part of the court, right? Uh, be Lubavitch, be Satmar, but certainly with a certain level of Hasidic teachings of identify with a Rebbe of, of, on some level. Uh, yeshivish uh, would be to be ensconced in a yeshiva polity. I think it's probably the best to borrow from Daniel Lazar. Uh, the idea that you identify with a community in which the yeshiva and the Rosh yeshiva or the Rosh Kolel was at the center of the community, which would inform gender roles, which would inform professional obligations, which does certainly do all of these things, which would probably help anticipate the number of children you would have in a family, it would dictate so much, the, the contours of this yeshivish community, which uh, in this yeshiva world would identify either around some constellation of yeshivas. So, for instance, uh, the Aguda, since the 1910s, 1920s, has had a Moetz Eskadolia Torah, the Council of Great Torah Sages. Not so much anymore. Is that very powerful? Now the orbit is around the base Medrash the yeshiva in Lakewood. But certainly, so I... Mean to say is that somebody who is part of the yeshiva world might identify with the gamut of the yeshivas here in America, in Israel, England, elsewhere, or maybe with a particular yeshiva in their in their local community, Cleveland, Baltimore, something like that. The modern Orthodox, uh, the term in its current incarnation, probably goes back to the mid '60s, late 1960s. Rabbi Norman Lamb assumes the mantle, just as Rabbi Emanuel Rackman chooses not to identify. He eschews the sub-designation. He would like to call himself just Orthodox. Rabbi Lam also demures the mantle of leadership from his, the early stages of, of his career in the 50s through the 60s and then eventually realizes, you know, there's some currency to be had in modern Orthodox, though he changes it eventually to centrist Orthodox and then much later he goes back, he reverts back to modern Orthodox. Uh, but for Rabbi Lam, it is the deliberate encounter between what he calls modernity and Western values, and the capacity of interchange of ideas, of synthesis, of amalgam with Judaism, with Torah, with rabbinic learning. In some sense, in Jonathan Sarna's article, The Cult of Synthesis, argues that one of the unique experiences of Jews in the United States is that they're always looking to create some sort of synthesis between their Jewish identity and their uh, sense of American identity. With modern orthodoxy, it's, it's diving right into the pool of tension, uh, willing to fight over it, willing to joust. Uh, I think that's what separates it with um, other mottos, whether it be in conservative tradition and change or in reform Judaism, reconstructionist Judaism, is they take it very seriously. It's not a motto. It's it's worth getting angry over. Not to say that modern Orthodox Jews are misanthropes or that they like to pick fights, but they're really, really, really committed to parsing out those ideas or at least to go on that journey. Yeah, so, so I think that what you just laid out there about this kind of landscape of Orthodox Jewry in America is really useful in a lot of ways, but it also helps me a bit to understand something that really shocked me actually when I read your book, which is that you note in the book that the number of modern Orthodox Jews in America is very small. The number was like, what, 3% of the whole population right. of American Jewry. Yeah. And I think that that's something that really blows away a lot of assumptions that people have about modern Orthodoxy, which is to say that I think that from the outside, people kind of assume that the modern Orthodoxy is one of the big three 
denominations. Yeah, but how is that different than Will Herberg, a Protestant Catholic Jew? Jews were never 33% of the American Jewish population in the 1950s, but what they represented and how people reacted might have been a third. Okay, so you've actually just answered the question I was about to ask, which is to say that when we look at a population that is a very small minority of the Jewish population in America, which is also a very small portion of the overall American population, why do modern Orthodox Jews matter? And I, and, I, and I say this in full view of the fact that we can say the same thing about Jewish history as a whole, the topic of this whole podcast. From a certain perspective, the Jews are a very small people in number and a global scale. So why do we care about them? And, and we do. There are a lot of things that we learn from looking at, at Jewish history, even though it's not a lot of people in a global scale. And we could probably say the same thing about modern Orthodox Jews. And I was hoping that you might be able to tell us what is going on here by looking at this very small slice of American Jewry. And here again, you sort of are talking about Protestant Catholic Jew in the same way. And I think here, this provides an inlet into this idea, which is to say, why does this group have a significance alongside the other major Jewish groups when numerically speaking, it's much smaller in the same way that, that American Jews being much smaller than Catholics and Protestants in number still is a major issue. Overwhelming space. So I'm not suggesting that the other 97% of Jews are reacting to modern orthodoxy, but a high quotient are their positionality in American Judaism. It, it's predicated on what modern Orthodox Jews are doing or thinking. I'm not saying it's all 97%, but they are the point of departure. They are the determinant of change. Certainly for the yeshiva world population. And I would argue that if you look in the 70s and the 80s, among conservative Jews, they were looking at modern orthodoxy as a prototype, a template, one to eventually reject, but they were reacting to it. So this is fascinating. You're saying that we think about orthodoxy as being unchanging. And of course, we know this is actually wrong, right? Orthodoxy is always changing. Uh, and it's a product of modernity, which we'll get to in, in a moment. But you're saying that Modern orthodoxy, which is making these claims to authenticity, another term that we're going to delve into in just a moment, is actually an agent of change for the Jewish community as a so. whole. I think that's why it's interesting. I haven't counted, but if you think in your mind, how many monographs, how many articles on American Jewish life are committed to Orthodox Judaism compared to conservative Judaism or Reform Judaism? I think it's more. So why? Why do you think that it's gotten so much attention? when it's a small number of the overarching Jewish population. And then alongside this, people are writing about it because it's interesting. It's right. So, so, so why is it getting so much attention? And then what is all of this teaching us then about American Judaism or about American religion as a whole? Again, I think that you learn about the so-called non-observant, not my term, from Orthodox Jewish practice. You learn much about conservative Judaism insofar as that it is a departure from a so-called orthodoxy. You don't get a heterodox unless you have an orthodox. For that reason, it's almost self-revelatory for any type of American Jew or any Jew to look at orthodox Judaism and to say, well, that's what that is? Well, now what am I? And I think from a scholarly point of view, it, it, the audaciousness of carrying on with a tradition-bound faith in modern American life. It's fascinating. What works, what doesn't work? Where is there change? The unevenness. Part of it is also the unevenness of, of, of lived religion. 
right, is you do this, but you don't do that. Women can learn Talmud, but they can't be rabbis in, in most circles. You can set your lights on a timer on Shabbat, but you can't do other items with the timer or with technology. Scholars of the Amish, they use a the term bargaining with modernity. Bargaining connotes a certain unevenness of we're going to do this, but we're not going to do that. We're going to give a little on that, but we're not going to move one inch on something else. And so I think that even though I don't believe that scholars of Orthodox Judaism in the United States have looked at the Amish as a model, but it's, it's a shared curiosity about this bargaining. It provides inquisitiveness and it provides, I think, deep probing into why does this work? P- partly because, you know, uh, people like Glazer and Sclair in the 1950s, they anticipated that it wouldn't work. It's not worth dedicating chapters of our books to Orthodox Judaism because it's simply a movement in a state of decay. It's not going to last. Part of it is the triumphalism. Part of it is that it has worked. So much so that at first, it was figured, uh, for example, Marshall Sclair apologized in the 1970s. I suppose that Orthodox Judaism is here to stay in the United States. He figured it would be the modern Orthodox, the ones who have Americanized. He couldn't have fathomed that 10 years later, it would be very, very clear that it would be the yeshiva world that would flourish at a high, high greater tech, a high greater quotient than even its modern Orthodox counterpart. Yeah. So I want to come back in a bit. There are just so many interesting things to dive into here uh, to this question of how people in the past perceived the future of orthodoxy. Prophets of the past. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's a fundamental question of the secularization thesis that I think that we need to delve into. But I think that I want to think a bit more about the frameworks of modern orthodoxy, which is to say that I am, I'm really struck by the discussion that you have in the book and also that you just mentioned here before about the origins of the terms of modern orthodoxy. And that, that what you are saying here is that the, the modern Orthodox Jews, defined by how they self-identify, that they are accepting the terminology of modernity actively because they are, they are engaging in this tension between these two poles. But one way to think about this is that, that they are simultaneously modern Orthodox Jews positioning themselves against two different groups of people. They're positioning themselves against sort of more liberal Jewish denominations and streams. Reform Judaism, conservative Judaism, reconstructionist Judaism. I guess they're reconstructing Judaism now. They renamed themselves. But modern Orthodox Jews are on the one hand positioning themselves against these kind of more liberal streams. They are Orthodox in comparison to those, but they're also modern in comparison to a whole range of groups of Jews that are on the other side of them, if we want to talk about Judaism as a spectrum, which of course is a bit too simplistic. But you're talking about the yeshivish world. You're talking about the Hasidic world, the ultra-Orthodox world. And I see this as similar right, or parallel to the way in which we can understand the history of the terminology of conservative Judaism as it emerged in the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, in, as a direct response to the idea of reform. And so part of what I'm getting at here with this kind of long question is that there's a whole bunch of interesting things happen when we talk about what do we mean by modern Orthodox Jews and modern Orthodox Judaism. Because first of all, on the one hand, I think that we would probably agree that all Jews are in some way engaged with modern life. You know, even those who are supposedly not, like the ultra-Orthodox, supposedly are cut off from the modern world, same way that the Amish are supposedly cut off from the modern world. But in fact, that's not true at all. And we know that orthodoxy as a whole is kind of a product of modern times. 
what is the terminology and the way that modern Orthodox Jews describe themselves, you know, frameworks like Torah Umada, like Torah and science, what does it tell us about how they understand themselves and how their self-understanding is different or similar from what we know as scholars who are studying this community and this belief system in depth? If I can try to summarize it a little bit, how does all of this help us to better understand the community from the outside, it also helps us to understand the self-understanding. Well, modern is relative. It's indexical. It changes its meaning depending on what period you're in. Uh, modern orthodoxy in the 1920s was synonymous with conservative Judaism. In fact, in the 1960s, not only does Rabbi Emanuel Rachman reject the appellation modern orthodox, but even Yitz Greenberg, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, says, I abhor the term. I reject it uh, completely. What does it mean to those people? In the 1960s, it means that in a period of radical change, of revolution, uh, they're willing to be a part of modernity. But at the same time, it was informed by what they conceived of a Judaism that uh, was still traditional. They were certainly reacting with the subtle, although perceptible rise of the yeshiva world. Remember, Ravon Cutler gets here in 1941. He arrives in the United States. Ramosha Feinstein's already here. But Ravon Cutler dies in 1962. By the time of his passing, he is a major figure for the so-called yeshiva world. Unquestionably, modern Orthodox Jews don't identify with that community. They identify, again, with, with whether it's the Rabbinical Council of America, with the Orthodox Union, certainly with the towering personality, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, the Rav, with leaders like Rabbi Lamb, Rabbi Norman Lamb, who would eventually become president of Yeshiva University. And that's really how modern orthodoxy becomes so synonymous with Yeshiva University at that point. What does modern mean for them? I think it, it's a willingness to question. Even wrote an article over the summer using some of the data sets from the Pew study and looking at intellectual curiosity. And if you break down the Pew data sets, you find that the group most intellectually curious are the modern Orthodox Jews. Interestingly, the group that rivals them are female yeshivish, whereas the male yeshivish are very, very low. But as a whole, modern Orthodox Jews are intellectually curious. Modern is a license to protect your Jewishness, but still jump headfirst into realms of curiosity, whether that's in terms of ethics, science, Torumada, Western civilization, literature, being a part of the world. Again, it's, it's, it's almost a brazenness. So I guess one way to, to continue this line of thought uh, is that you're talking about how calling themselves modern is an invitation for themselves to be part of the modern world. It's not at all seamless. It's not at all easy. Uh-huh. But if I can sort of continue that, what does it tell us about the way that modern Orthodox Jews understand their relationship with other Orthodox Jews who don't fall under or use the terminology of modern Orthodoxy to describe themselves? You know, they're at a crossroads because by 1963, the Goddess Israel has produced the monthly periodical, The Jewish Observer, which invariably every issue had an editorial, had a feature column about intra-faith dialogue, about the question of whether or not Orthodox Jews are allowed to participate in the New York Board of Rabbis, Synagogue Council of America. We don't think about this anymore, really. Uh, uh, The Synagogue Council became defunct in 1994. But this was a major issue. The Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox rather, refused to relent. We want to stay engaged in both worlds. 
We want to bicker. We want to fight. We want to align ourselves with conservative reform, sometimes with the yeshiva world. It was never a community that was identified with a certain level of salience. It was one that was willing to encounter in an unevenness. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I hope this doesn't like feel like like I'm really focusing on the terminology in particular over everything else. But I think that, that it's important to see the words that people use to describe themselves, which comes to the way that you describe modern Orthodox Judaism. When we look at this, this book that you recently published, you make particular use of the terminology of authenticity. You start out the book, actually it's called Authentically Orthodox, right? With a discussion of Rabbi Leonard Gewurz's 1961 manual for Orthodox Jews, which he addressed to authentic Jews. Right. So there are a whole range of ways we could dive into what this means. There's a whole critique of the whole concept of authenticity from a scholarly perspective as well. I was wondering if you could just maybe comment on the term, you know, why you find it to be so useful and what it means in terms of the history itself. So Leonard Gewurz uses it in two different ways. Number one, he assumes that his Orthodox community most closely resembles the Vilna Gon, right? The Gona Vilna. 1720 to 1797, so 18th century Jewish sage. But he also identifies authenticity, not just from a chronological point of view, but from a, a sense of feeling. Uh, a certain uh, sociologist, social scientist, Regina Bendix is the one that influenced me, on the notion that authenticity is a feeling. It's crying at a funeral. It's being scared while watching a, a horror film. It's something you really, there's an imprecision about it certainly to quantify, to speak about it too analytically. But I argue that with all tradition-bound faiths, not just Orthodox Judaism, not just modern Orthodox Judaism, I argue that all tradition-bound faiths in America are somehow on a quest to live their religion authentically. And that's mediated by a web of experiences, mediated by all sorts of cultural norms, and not even non-normative cultures as well. It's why bat mitzvah only through the American frontier is made into an authentic Orthodox uh, Jewish ritual, not just for modern Orthodox, but for uh, many people who wouldn't, Orthodox Jews who wouldn't identify necessarily as modern Orthodox. So I, I, I try to get on that particular issue of authenticity, of idea that everybody is on a quest, everybody being a tradition-bound faiths in America, are, are deeply invested in a project to live an authentic life, it's not necessarily what more closely approximates a certain type of living in the old world, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. It's about what looks and feels right now. There's a lot to think about here because you're talking about like a striving for authenticity. But this, of course, is not limited to American Jews, right? You're talking about how this is also something that's taking place in other religious groups and also outside of it as well. But at the same time, there is a way in which neo-orthodoxy, so to speak, to use another kind of technical yeah, term, term, yeah, yeah, has has relied upon the language of truth. You talk about Torah, true Judaism, like truth and authenticity. In, in a certain way, they don't mean exactly the same thing, but they are closely related to one another. And so, I'm wondering if you maybe want to to say a bit more about how the language of authenticity relates to the American context broadly speaking, in which this is developing, as you're saying, in the 60s, and also to the specificities of the emergence of modern orthodoxy in America. You know, it's, it's not necessarily so different. Torah Troya is a term that was held up by Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, right? 1808 to 1888. 
And in his Frankfurt community, it's a great trivia question. Who was the very first European rabbi to do away with Kol Nidre? Answer is Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, thinking that it would provoke a certain level of anti-Semitism if Jews would be disavowing their, well, vows on Yom Kippur Eve. And when his Balabatim, when the rank and file approached him afterwards, how can you do away with Kol Nidre? It's not Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur. Unless we have the melody of Kol Nidre, he understood at that moment that there was something less authentic about that momentous once-a-year experience. Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur. So on one hand, yes, you're absolutely right, is that the, the quest for authenticity exists in other locations. At the same time, though, I think historians are, they're in agreement, is that for Hirsch, that, for example, the great scholar historian Jacob Katz, he defined orthodoxy as a grappling and a movement between tradition and modernity. And he based it off of, he grew up, uh, not with Rabbi Hirsch, but with the successors of Rabbi Hirsch in Frankfurt. Uh, and that's where he developed his uh, notion of, of an axis, that orthodoxy exists between uh, tradition uh, and modernity. So it exists in other places. But within America, this tabula rasa, this place, even in the 1830s when Tocqueville, when de Tocqueville uh, noticed the peculiarity is that religion exists elsewhere. It exists on aprons. It exists in music, in popular culture. That, that sort of lived unchurched religion, it, it had more leeway to grapple with what was authentic or not. Wherever you looked, you didn't see an old church, an old cathedral. The project of tilling the American soil with religion made it maybe more interesting in, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think that the part of what you're doing in the book that is so interesting, and I think that we can ask sort of what is the big issue here, right, is that you are putting this tension between the effort to attain quote-unquote authenticity and also how religion manifests itself in people's everyday lives, the way in which we have a live religion. So there are two questions I want to ask here about this. The first one is how does this dual approach help us to understand modern Orthodox Jews in America, right? and broadly speaking, the history of American Judaism, and also how can we as scholars, right, and also in general we talk about educated people, think about authenticity when we also understand that nothing is really authentic, right? This is all a construct in a way. People are striving for authenticity. They want this feeling that they are doing something authentic, but in reality, you know, everybody is doing their own thing. Authenticity is kind of a made-up category in a certain way. Made up? I think it's just a relative category. I'm not the first one to study uh, lived religion in American Judaism. Janet Joslett long ago studied so-called kitchen Judaism. Uh, certainly, I did it in a book about Reform Judaism. Our colleague and friend Sherry Rabin wrote a terrific book about lived religion along the 19th century American Jewish frontier. That was the first book we had on the podcast. She was the first guest. Incredible scholar. Absolutely. So I'm not the first one. Mm -hmm. But this book, within the framework of Orthodox Judaism, was an attempt to not ignore the sermonic literature, not to do away with rabbis altogether, but to decenter the synagogue as, as a, the sole sacred space of religion. The truth is, scholars of American religion, Protestant Catholicism, have 
even Islam have started, I've done this as well, was to identify the boundary lines of what can count as an authentic Jewish experience. I look at, uh, you know, you've heard of baseball cards, but have you heard of rabbi cards, of gedolim cards? I look at not spelling bees, but bracha bees, blessing bees. I, when I was a young boy, I lost on a Napoleon. I had no idea what the dessert was. And then, and then kosher Lego. What is all this stuff about? Different Passover approved ingredients. I look at peanut oil and I look at gender, not necessarily in terms of feminism, but also masculinity, the other side of it. Wherever there's femininity, there's also masculinity. I look at dating practices at Yeshiva University. Uh, that's the stuff that uh, it, the practitioners, the historical actors themselves have to ask themselves, does this look right? Does it feel right? Hard to do that with the sources, but right. I try my best. Right. And I think for American Judaism, it, it, it does away with the compartmentalization. It does it with, it way with the idea that American Jewish life exists either in uh, you know, civil religion among the federations or it's, it's the traditional type of religion that exists with rabbis in the synagogue. But actually, I think with the American experience, that's, I think that's what I'm trying to link myself to. The American religious experience, it is one that is unchained to the churches and the synagogues. Building on that. You've listed off like a whole range of interesting cases. The book is, is, is a fabulous set of cases. But what do we get from looking at those kinds of cases? You're talking about peanut oil, you're talking about kosher Legos or whatever, right? What does this tell us uh, about modern Orthodox Jews and the way they live their lives and about the culture of religion in America? This seems to me that this is one of these ways in which we could say, okay, you have this book about modern Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox Judaism, a small group of people within a small group of people. But what's the big takeaway here when we look at these cases? Like, what do we learn from it? Wow. So I think the, the takeaway is about the ubiquity of religion, about how religion plays out in all areas of life. It's not just about the American Orthodox experience, though I certainly, that is my case study. That is my uh, point of reference for so many. I, I contextualize as much as I do, but it is at the end a book on the American Orthodox, American modern Orthodox, and most of the chapters experience, I think the takeaway is, is trying to really pinpoint this idea of authenticity. I think it's to say is it's not about secularization. It's not about uh, modernity versus tradition. It's not an either or. It's, and it's not even to the left or to the right. And it's not just about modern orthodoxy movements to the so-called left and the so-called right. Those are oversimplifications. It's about authenticity. It means that as American culture is moving in one direction politically, but another from, a, from another perspective, frontierism is waning. Economically, things are changing. American life isn't moving always in the same direction. All of its different realms are constantly rotating in, along different axes. In that way that it makes sense, stands to reason that American religion should also be incredibly messy. And that search for that sweet spot is what I call authenticity. Looking at these, these individual case studies, what does it then tell us? You talk about it telling us about the, the search for authenticity. So starting from the small and, and getting bigger, and bigger and bigger. Taking one of these case studies, let's say women's prayer groups, what does it teach us about the development and the cultures of modern orthodoxy in America? What does it tell us about American religion as, as a whole? It's a great example. So for example, the proponents of women's prayer groups in which they were very, very careful to be halachic, 
They were very careful that there wouldn't be 10 men, that they wouldn't pronounce certain parts of the liturgy that required 10 men. They said to their opponents, their detractors, what are we doing that's so wrong? What we're doing is no different than Besyakov homeroom, save for maybe some of us hold up a safer Torah. And all, and all the more so, it says a Gemara and Brachos, a Gemara Nida, that ain't Divrei Torah and Tuma, that Torah scrolls cannot contract impurity in case they were menstruating. What are we doing different from a theoretical framework, from a halachic point of view? Their opponent said, well, nothing at all. But it doesn't look right, said the opposition. Now, that obviously didn't sit well with the leadership of women's prayer. But situated and framed and presented in a certain way, it looked like an affront to orthodox masculinity. At the same time, they asked, well, then why did you allow us to learn Talmud? Talmud is a man's curriculum. How can modern orthodoxy be on board with that? Rabbi Louis Bernstein, the president of the Rabbinical Council of America, says something, if I'm getting it correct, it says, are we in favor of women's Talmud? Yes. Women's leadership? Yes. Women's participation in the synagogue? Sure. Women's prayer? Certainly not. They didn't understand that. It was incomprehensible. But mediated by cultural norms and what's going on in the age of Reagan in the 1980s and Jerry Falwell... 30 years later, we can look back and say, oh, I understand it now. Not, again, I'm not judging, but historically, we can understand how that messiness, how that transpired. Okay, so what's the connection then between, you know, the Reagan years and Jerry Falwell? I don't know if you want to like, like sort of sketch that out a, a bit more. The idea that feminism was at an adir, that ERA, that the 1980s was a low point in the history of American feminism, certainly compared to what had happened in the 1970s and then what had reemerged to the levels of the 1990s. They're not ignorant of that. And it's part of the American ethos. So, you, so you're saying in a lot of ways that when we look at like a case like women's prayer groups, we can see a microcosm of the bigger shifting sands sure. of American and, and life and American Jewish life. And they're aware of it. The leadership of women's prayers, and we don't use the so-called F word. We're not feminists. If we wanted to go to a conservative synagogue, we would. We want to be ensconced in an orthodox community. We want to have the certification. We want to have the hechsher, so to speak, of the Orthodox Union of the Rabbinical Council of America. It was important to them. It was important for them to justify and to authenticate their religious practice. I want to think big about sort of the major issues that you're dealing with, because you organize these case studies into three major groups. Right? You talk about Jewish law, about halakha, you talk about childhood and youth culture, and third, you look at issues of gender. And it seems to me, especially as you talk about this question of authenticity and the anxieties that that represents, it seems to me that each of these different groups of issues represents major areas of conflict or tension. It uh, approximates those tensions. Exactly. We look at the first one about halakha. It's a question of how people should perhaps interpret Jewish law in the American context. The second one about youth culture and so on has to do with the fears about the future, which are fundamentally tied to anxieties about the perceived trajectory of assimilation in America. And then the third one, uh, dealing with gender, as you just mentioned, is closely tied to the engagement with the shifting landscape of gender roles, feminism, etc., in American society in the second half of the 20th century up till today. And so 
what I'm interested in thinking about here is how those three realms are interconnected. What do we learn at large by bringing all these issues together in these three categories? I think that as a field, we struggle to define Jewishness, to define Judaism, to define religion. These three areas, Jewish law and practice, youth culture and education, and gender, not just femininity, but also masculinity, it, it happened really organically when I started to identify what are my case studies, that it's these three fields which do the best job at approximating that really hard to identify sense of Jewish identity, sense of Jewishness. And for the modern Orthodox, or in general the Orthodox, because there's some chapters and some sections that are just about Orthodox and sometimes the yeshiva world, these three areas, I'll use that term again, are are portals of entry into a hard-to-define sense of Jewishness. Uh, I think very often in America we use areas of our lives as indicators for our identities. What type of movies do you like? Well, I don't know exactly what type of movie I prefer, but let me list for you my six favorite movies and let's get at what are the common denominators of them. Uh, What do you like most in art? What do you like most in music? Well, let me tell you my favorite bands. Let me tell you what shows I've attended recently. I don't think it's any different in religion. I, I think the three areas come the closest in the modern Orthodox or just the Orthodox perspective of approximating uh, the components of a religious identity. It's the do's and the don'ts. Hard to say exactly what type of Jew I am. I know I'm a tradition-bound Jew, but even that is hardly comprehensible. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about myself. My sister was bat mitzvahed at a women's prayer group. My sister was not. It's not about me. I don't have a sister. One of four boys. I grew up that peanut oil was an ingredient. No, I grew up in an area in which only the other type of Jew still made their their matzah concoctions with peanut oil because we, of course, observed the so-called Hungarian folkway. I grew up in the post-67 period, so part of that, the exuberance of Zionist identity meant that I wore a yarmulke at ballparks, at university. I didn't. All that stuff Those experiences, those very, very contentious webs of religious experiences, they're the way that we speak out our religious and our cultural identities. And it's no different. I'm a BBYO Jew. Just to be clear, right? You're talking about like a hypothetical sort of like modern Orthodox Jew. Correct. I find myself to be the most boring of all historical subjects. I think that when we look at religious or cultural identity. We use approximational terms to code who we are and who we are not. In in the area of American religion, I argue that tradition-bound faiths are even more so provoked into this. All those approximations, the calculus in enunciating the do's and the don'ts, they really stand for what I'm calling authenticity. So when we look at these various aspects of live religion, you know, what do they tell us all together about the way in which modern Orthodox Jews, as they self-define, understand their relationship with what you call authentic Judaism? For example, so in the 50s, I think it was 1959, Eugene Barowitz, the great uh, Reformed theologian, he responded uh, to calls for American Orthodox Jews to develop a theology. American Jews don't study theology. We don't need 
a, a set of religious planks. Didn't work in 1885 with the Pittsburgh platform. Didn't work with Columbus in 1937. It's not going to work ever. It works through experiences. You can tell what a Jewish value is. Again, whether or not it's a Jewish value is not our business here. But how these historical actors framed their identities through practice, through lived experiences, was how they identified Jewishly. I don't know if that's the case in Europe. I tend to think the the historians of post-Hirsch orthodoxy in Germany point out that they read his Chumash commentary, his Bible commentary, to get a sense of what their Jewishness was. I don't think people were reading Wishagrad, Lamb, Soloveitchik. I don't think they were reading Kierkegaard. I don't think they were reading Heschel or Kaplan mm-hmm. to understand their Jewishness. They were doing it. Now, if it happened to be those theologies that to be melded onto their religious practices, and that was wonderful. Then they can make a real cogent argument. But in, in American religious life, and particularly in American Jewish life, and more particularly in American Orthodox life, these sequences and interrelated webbings of, of stuff that people do, that wasn't just a placeholder. It became a way of coding and decoding one's religious identity. Yeah, I mean, I think that what you're talking about here is really important in terms of how we understand the importance of live religion. And this, of course, is the tension because the idea of authenticity is tied to a sense that there is a source of authenticity. If we talk about authenticity and kind of sidestep the the question of whether authenticity is real to begin with or not, but but if we think about the search for authenticity, I think often people associate the idea of the authentic with the source of authenticity, that it's coming kind of from top down in a way. But I think what you're talking about here is that the individual search for authenticity as opposed to a claim from above saying this is real Judaism and that's not. So I think like, like a Charles Lieben sort of folk religion versus elite religion. I think it's, I think it's coming from both. Um, certainly see it in fundamentals Christianity. You see it at Bob Jones University and others about courtship practices, whether or not one is allowed to do certain types of dances at Barnard College in the 1930s even, so not even a religious institution. What is acceptable? What works? And when universities and undergrad life come to represent a particular construct in America in the 1950s and 1960s. What is BYU? What does Gordon College do in Boston? And same thing with Yeshiva University. Mm-hmm. I, I want to sort of think about this more. You keep bringing up non-Jewish examples. And I think that there's so much to think about here about how we can situate the search for authenticity and the, and the claim to be real within a whole range of issues. Right? So I, I think about some of the discourse within evangelical Christianity, which again, we, we can't talk about that as a singular thing, there are many different strands within sure. it. But if, if you think about the way that some Christians, particularly evangelicals, talk about themselves, they see themselves as a minority within the society, which is to say that they say, oh, we are Christians. We are real Christians. But of course, there are many Christians out there who they don't see as real or authentic Christians. And, and so this sort of ties in with this fundamental question of authenticity, which is to say, what is at stake? What we're talking about for Jews in America or other groups who are saying, we have this claim to authenticity. And then there are many other people who fall within the same ethnic or religious category for Jews, uh, reformed Jews, conservative Jews, whatever. Those are not really practicing real Judaism in the same way that, that some Christians would say, like, we are the real Christians. You people who have Christmas trees, but practice Christianity differently or are more secular are not real. 
I'm putting all this in quotes, but what, what I'm suggesting here is what's the connection between the search for authenticity and the contentious claim that I am a real Jew, so to speak, and you are not? So maybe it's about where it clicks for different religious clusters. For a particular segment of uh, Protestant fundamentalism, that that jostling for position of where does their faith and where does their practice, where does it, where's that sweet spot where sort of the seatbelt clicks is at one place. And in reform Judaism, it's another. And for American Islam, it's yet another place. For modern orthodoxy also, all the experience have to come together. And then at some point, and it might only be for just a, a really small moment. It clicks before everything goes to hell again. Authenticity is where it clicks, where it all makes sense, where we found that positioning in American life, where I feel comfortable with how my Judaism is matching with the cultural forces at play. Whether it's curricularly, whether it's the way that I dress, whether it's the music that I listen to. And it's never the same. A decade goes by, you need a new place to click, to reorient. That reorientation period is the process of undergoing a new investigation as to how authentic is my religious practice. And then the click. I mean, there's so much we can think about about authenticity. We're only kind of scratching the surface here. I, I, I feel like for listeners, it might be too much in a way. I, I want to move forward in a bit you know, because I think that there are so many other issues that we have talked about or that we've kind of like touched upon that I, that I want to delve into. And, and one of these has to do with the secularization thesis. Oh, and of course, when I talk about secularization thesis, I mean sort of the hypothesis or, or the idea that over the course of time, a society is going to become less religious whether we're talking about kind of a, a, a Weberian kind of like disenchantment of the world or in general, the, the decline in numbers of say Orthodox Jews, for instance. And this of course, I think is, is really where we see like a fundamental issue at play within Jewish history and within the history of modern religion in general, which is to say that when the past 150 years, maybe more in the recent past, in, in the course of modern times, uh, a lot of people have basically said that Orthodoxy is on its way out. And this of course is not really true the history of modern orthodoxy as well as other streams of religion really demonstrates that there's not any kind of teleology towards the secularization of society or the decline of religious groups. And so what I'm curious about is like how your research on the history of modern orthodoxy helps to contribute towards a complex and useful understanding of the nature of religion in modern societies. So maybe mostly that it's cyclical, that there are ups and there are downs. When all the pundits suggested that orthodoxy was on the decline, it was never going to get back up in the 1950s, a certain type of orthodoxy never really reemerged. The Lower East Side brand of orthodoxy, the so-called non-observant orthodox Jew who worked on a Saturday because they needed to support their families, who sent to Talmud Torah, their kids to after-school programs, that type of orthodoxy disappeared. A, an orthodoxy that positioned itself around leading rabbinic figures, Roshe Yeshiva, people like Ruderman Baltimore, that, that it wasn't an invention. Certainly there were analogs from before then. But that type of orthodoxy wasn't anticipated. And it comes about, I don't know if as a response to secularization, but really in, in any period, uh, religion has to adapt, has to reshape itself. Not just adapt, reshape itself. 
reconfigure itself to respond to a moment in time. So, I mean, I think that, that what you're saying here, and I think that the argument that you're trying to make here is the fundamental connection of what's taking place in terms of American Jewish religion and what's taking place in terms of American religion as a whole. Sure. And, and, and when you talk about sort of ups and downs, we're talking about religious recession. We're talking about sort of like awakenings. So the the declension of, of synagogues and the rise of Federation Jews. And now we're seeing the decline of federations in the emergence of mega funders and do-it-yourself Judaism. What I'm trying to get at here is, is that you're making this, this very powerful case that we need to understand modern Orthodox Judaism within this religious landscape of American life as a whole. I think and, so. and, and I think here again, like when we can understand uh, sort of this as, as a shift within the study of American Judaism as a whole, that this is the prevailing view in a lot of ways among scholars, right? That you understand American Judaism within its context, the same way that you study any Jewish community, not separate or divorced from what's going on around it, but as part of the situation. And so here I, I want to come back to what you said before. You've, you've mentioned before a number of other religious groups, non-Jews. So where do you see the parallels and perhaps distinctions? Where do you see the parallels and perhaps some distinctions between what's taking place in the search for authenticity, so to speak, amongst modern Orthodox Jews in America and other religious groups? Yeah, I'll give you a good example. Uh, you gave it actually, Jason, is the, is the top down versus bottom up. In American Protestantism, and Jonathan Sarna made this point about uh, late 19th century. American Judaism, that it was a bottom-up revival rather than a top-down. In American Christianity, think about post-war, think about 70s and 80s, it was the elites who were dictating the contours of American Protestantism, uh, the do's and the don'ts. Um, Sure, there was elite leadership within Orthodox circles. It was also bottom-up. I think also is, I make an argument that you need to understand Judaism in America at full depth, at its Americanized full depth. You need to take its American surroundings very seriously. The same way that you, need, you ought to think about Lithuanian orthodoxy in its Lithuanian context. The models that we've been using to understand American orthodox life for decades has been borrowed from an assessment tools that were developed in a German orthodox context. They're not wrong, but we need to expand our, our tool set to account for what is uniquely American about American orthodoxy, American tradition about faiths, American Judaism. So what is uniquely American? I would say it's the authenticity. I would say it's that it is what mediates, what empowers, what causes change more than anything else in American Jewish life and American religion is the concept of authenticity. Is there a connection between this search for authenticity that you are identifying amongst religious people. And here I'm talking about modern Orthodox Jews, as well as the other groups that you've described, as well as non-religious groups. And I think here about kind of like the, the rise of new age approaches and all these things where like they're trying to be true to themselves. Is there, is there a connection between the search for authenticity in religious terms and the search for authenticity in other ways? So I would say that for tradition, here's a good example is in the 1960s, before Humana Vitae, which was the Pope's encyclical on birth control. Uh, American Catholicism, American Catholics, had been moving towards certain levels of permission in use of birth control. We're talking about the pill uh, becomes widely popular in the early 1960s. When the Pope, to the chagrin of all of these activists, actually rules against the use of certain permissive acts in birth control, that causes... A, a cascade of disaffiliation 
because they realize that their practice, it's not me speaking, it's what historians of American Catholicism argue, that when the Pope, which obviously it's a much more centralized body than Judaism has, uh, but when the Pope offers Humana Vitae, I believe in 1968, that makes it irreconcilable practice and religious authenticity. And they choose to disaffiliate. As they were moving in that direction throughout the 1960s, American Catholics have been agitated for change, thinking that they could create an authentic Catholic experience. Right. Now, the question of authenticity within Judaism in the post-Holocaust era is also very important. And this is something that comes up in my own research and my writing as well, is thinking about how Jews in the 1950s and 60s and beyond tried to understand themselves as continuing what had been destroyed in some fashion. And so when you're talking about the search for authenticity as being part of the American context, to what extent is this also a part of the post-Holocaust kind of response to the destruction of European Jewry? Jonathan Wutcher made famous this whole rebirth theology. The idea of rebirth as an American Jewish theology, uh, that American Jews are somehow responsible to rebuild uh, Jewish culture and certainly Jewish life in America and in Israel uh, becomes one of the great planks of American Jewish life. It's how they give. It's their philanthropy. It's the basis of it. It's absolutely part of it. I don't at all dismiss what American Judaism borrows from Europe, from other contexts. I'm very clear about that. I don't, the, the nine chapters, these nine case studies, I offer to complicate our understanding, not to redefine it. Certainly it's there, and it makes the American religious experience all the more freighted, all the more complicated. There are a lot of factors. There are a lot of determinants of change. I put forward that the quest for authenticity in a world in which you don't see cathedrals on top of hilltops, you don't have old religion here. American religion is one that comes out in our music, comes out in how we style our homes the furniture we use, uh, what's on it, what's not on it. That that invitation to to make something a lived religion, to make Judaism or Christianity or Islam or any faith a part not just of your synagogue or church, but of your lived experience, invites a level of creativity. And I think that creativity is defined, it's mediated, again, by how does it look, how does it feel? It's hard to describe. I try to do it. I think there's so much we can talk about here. I want to go back to the fact that you've written two books on the subject. We've really mostly been talking about your most recent book. But what we have here is we have these two books where you're telling the story of modern Orthodox Jews in America in two very distinctive ways. One of which is a narrative history through case studies. And the second one is a documentary history looking to bring forward these historical materials so that they can be studied directly. So having done this, right, looked at this history through two different approaches, how can we tell a different story through documents versus telling a narrative history in a monograph? How do these two approaches allow you to do different things? And why do those two different approaches matter? Yeah, so the Modern Orthodox Judaism documentary history, I was invited to work on it while I was busy with my dissertation on Reform Judaism in the 19th century. So it was was rather schizophrenic to do both projects. That book, I think, has had a good bit of success. Schools teach it. As part of their curriculum, it's given teachers, sometimes they just teach the book, sometimes they will lift sections of it. It's great because there are images in it, there are women, men, children, rabbis, lay people. 
it engenders a level of discussion in the classroom and uh, synagogue boardrooms. They tell me that they discuss it. Some I, I'm told by one by one person that she and her husband pick a source that they debate at their Shabbos table. That's rather unique. It, it's it's not at all about. I helped curate the discussion, but it was an invitation for readers to take what they knew or what they thought they knew about a particular community at fuller depth and engage the sources. They're always very hard, um, you know, as historians. So when we, when we look through sources, we find that money quote will distill a, uh, an entire uh, document, maybe five pages, 20 pages into one quotation. You can't do that with a documentary history. There has to be material that expands several paragraphs. So it's very hard to choose which sources worked and which ones didn't, and even coming up with the sections. Uh, that was a, more than a little bit of a challenge. If the documentary history was uh, a teaching device, the, this book, it's not, it's not a survey. It's not a history of modern Orthodox Judaism. Some chapters aren't about modern Orthodox Judaism. What each chapter contains is an argument to understand the web of authentic experiences of modern culture throughout really the balance of the 20th century. This book really has my commentator's voice. It has my analysis. It's a little scarier for that reason. In the other book, if you didn't like a source, okay, it's part of our history, but it's not me. This other book, it's not, it's not me. I'm, I'm sure a psychoanalyst would be able to identify how, how each chapter speaks autobiographically. It's beyond my abilities. But this book... I try to be creative. Each chapter tries to take a moment that was a little bit innocuous, that you sort of wonder, hopefully, at the beginning of the chapter, is he really going to talk about, write about peanut oil on Passover? Is he really going to talk about the minutia and the pedantic stuff of a, of, of a court case about whether or not high school boys are allowed to wear a yarmulke while playing basketball at an Illinois playoff game? Mm-hmm. And yeah, the answer is yes. The answer is because that's where religion lives. And it's far more interesting sometimes than buried in a sermon. Okay. You have mentioned a couple of times, especially just in the in the past moment or two, people picking up these books and reading it who happen to be modern Orthodox yeah. as a way to understand themselves. That's a good point. So why should somebody who's not a modern Orthodox Jew pick up this book? What would it teach them? And also for non-Jews, what did they get out of this book? Audience is a really interesting thing. For the modern Orthodox reader... Uh, the audience was intended to be, I think, sophisticated American Jews and particularly Orthodox Jews. Mm-hmm. It, it was, it was a, it was a teaching tool. After all, I think I give a course, a survey course at Hebrew Theological College on a, a survey of the history of Orthodox Judaism in America. I may be the only one in uh, American universities who does that. Mm-hmm. So certainly, the book. It is used in several university classrooms, but it isn't the only book used. Certainly not. That's not, that was never its intention. This book, this book, I'd like to see a lot of different people read it. This book, I think, for scholars of American Jewish life, for scholars of modern Judaism, and I think for American religion, I think this is really interesting. I think that I offer the context, and I think I, I hopefully reach beyond a bunch of idiosyncratic stories. I think that's happening. We'll have to wait and see. One other thing that is actually totally unrelated from this particular set of books, but I think relates to a broader set of issues about why Jewish history matters, is that I know that in addition to your academic work, 
you also recently you have been involved uh, in some other kinds of projects, right. particularly the Jewish, the Jewish Impact Genome Project. Right. So I was wondering if you want to say something very briefly about that work and how it relates to your research and how you see the intersection between your work and the broad issues of the American Jewish community on the one hand, and also in general, the role that scholars can have in terms of shaping things which are happening, you know, and not just writing about the past. So we all talk about being interdisciplinary, but this one, I think I bit off a little more than I can chew at some points. I became the research director of the Jewish Impact Genome. I promise you I had nothing to do with the the wording there, which takes American Jewish life, which is heavily scaffolded by assessment. You're running a program for teens, for intermarried couples, for at synagogues, uh, at day schools, at camps, Jewish cultural events, and funders and practitioners, hopefully practitioners more than anybody else, they want to know what works and what was the impact. Birthright, for example, beginning in 1999, really set this in motion is that not everything can be measured, but anything that can be measured ought to be measured. So for the purpose of closing the loop and for programmatic improvement. And our work there was to create all the different possible outcomes, a taxonomy of who is benefiting from these interventions synagogues, schools, all these are interventions. They all have theories of change. We want to take participants, whomever they might be, and once they enter into the change machine, they come out a little bit different. That's summer camp. If in summer camp all you did was have fun, that's not good enough. How was something inside of you increased? It didn't matter to me what was being increased, but what was the logic model? And what are the questions? What are, how can we interrogate that and ask what is being changed? I thought that my perspective, uh, as somebody studies American religion, American Judaism, complicated it. It's not sufficient just to ask, do you light Shabbat candles on Friday night? Do you do a Passover Seder? It got at the complexities of Jewishness. Not to say that we can brand somebody a Tikkun Olam Jew, or an APAC Jew, or J-Street Jew for that matter. What are the components of their Jewishness? And can we come up with a language for evaluation, a shared language? that people looking to foster and further North American Jewish life can use to compare one another, not to compete for dollars necessarily, but to learn from one another. It would be a remarkable thing if prescriptively somebody looked at PJ Library and said, I want to build a program that does something a little bit similar, but a little bit different. What are its parts and where have they been successful? They've been assessed. They've had remarkable evaluations, very sophisticated. Limud. Wexner fellowships. What's happening there? What can we learn from past cohorts? And how can either, if I run a program similarly, a little bit different, what is the value of a Mifgash? We all know of the power of a Mifgash, whether it's the confrontation between Jews and non Jews, American Jews and Israeli Jews, Jews of different types, whatever it might be. The, the confrontation of Mifgash, that meeting point, we know. Theoretically, we know anecdotally, we know from our experiences that it works. Why does it work? How does it work? Having been involved in a project like this and drawing on your scholarly sensibility and also the knowledge and expertise that you have as a scholar of American Judaism, what do you think that scholars have to contribute? Like, what do you think is the potential contribution that scholars, historians, sociologists, scholars of religion, et cetera, have to contribute to the broader conversations, which so often are uninformed or are unsophisticated 
Uh, and I say that without trying to demean them. I'm saying that part of what I'm thinking about with the podcast is that scholars have something to contribute to the wider world and that the research that we're doing matters and it's important. And so the question is, how does that actually get put into practice? And I feel like you might have a unique perspective on that as somebody who's been involved in something kind of like that. So for me, it's paying it forward. I don't know about you, but when I find a sociological study about, let's say, Jews in Richmond, Virginia, in the 1880s. I'm so glad that somebody counted the Jews, somebody tabulated, somebody crunched the numbers for me that I can embed it in a sentence, in a paragraph, in an article, on whatever. As historians, as people who do the humanities, we have the ability to set in motion, to color the numbers, to make it more complicated. Um, Not to say that social scientists are not sophisticated people, but we have the ability to make those numbers dance. We have the ability to parse it out, to say, what's, to help better understand what is happening and take the lessons of history. Like my first book about authority struggles between religious and lay authority. How does that play out? It does. It exists in Federation life today. What are the interventions uh, to bring different generations of stakeholders, of donors together? Uh, whether it's a trip to Israel, whether it's a Shabbaton. What's happening here? We have the language to put that into high-definition color. And it's not a shame that we haven't done it, but it behooves us. It's our responsibility, perhaps. I I think we have something to contribute. I think that, that our knowledge and our theory, the collective wisdom that we get from putting together a really dynamite lit review, we ought to pay it forward. We ought to give it something because that's the point of history. Not just to learn about one moment of time, but to, to take that wisdom and hand the baton over to somebody else, maybe that's still included, to, to make meaning. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we do as historians. It's not just that it's, we're curious about something that happened in uh, 1602, but something interesting happened and it ought to inform much more than the past. I mean, I think that that's really the distinction that a lot of um, scholars would say between what we call antiquarianism and scholarship. And, and what I mean by that is, right, this distinction between like, oh, that's just like an interesting thing that happened. Great, but it has meaning. When I think about like why Jewish history matters, there's all sorts of questions about why the topic of Jewish history matters. But it's also a question of like how what scholars are doing can help to give meaning and significance to how we understand the world. And, and even when a theory from the 1930s does, it no longer resonates the, the parameters, its politics don't exist anymore in 2019 going on in 2020. Questions about, well, why not anymore? That interrogation can lend itself to contemporary Jewish life. Any life, for that matter. That's what, that's what we do as historians. That's what makes it awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. This was really a Amazing. lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Zev LF. And I should mention again, that if you're interested in purchasing the book, Authentically Orthodox, Wayne State University has a promo code. So if you purchase the book directly from them and use the code POD1, you can get 30% off. That's P-O-D and the number one. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and thanks for listening to Jewish History Matters.